Hello, and welcome to Small Screen Science, the podcast where we look at the science behind your favourite TV programmes. I'm Karen. And I'm Emma, and this week's episode is called Strictly Science because we are going to be looking at the nation's favourite dance contest, Strictly Come Dancing. Did you see much of this year's Strictly? Do you know what? I didn't really. I used to watch quite a lot of Strictly with my parents when I still lived at home, but um, to be honest, it takes up quite a lot of your weekend, doesn't it? They're really long shows and they're Saturdays and Sundays and all I really care about is the dancing. I don't really like all the kind of... Well, the banter in between when they're, they're doing the uh, background and looking at how they learnt the dance. Yeah. You just I'm, want them to dance. I'm just not interested in that. It's just, it takes up too much time. So I tend to watch like some of the dances on YouTube um, and then you only see the good or the really bad as well because you kind of hear what people are talking about and then you can watch those. Do, do you watch it? Yeah, no, I thought I really enjoyed it this season actually and um, I think um, Kelvin and Otie were just amazing from week one. If you saw their um, their samba in week one, it was actually Oh, I did stunning. actually. I did. That was that was quite extraordinary, actually. You can normally tell, I think, in week one, kind of who is going to make it, at the very least, to the final. There's always a couple of people that have just that little that little something. And Kelvin certainly had something. He certainly did. He, he certainly had a bit of a... McGee. He was a bit he of was a all over wiggle. The place. And uh, the two of them together were just so sexy. Yeah, they had they had a little they had some good chemistry there. Yeah, definitely. And of course, one of the reasons I love watching Strictly is the outfits because I have to say the ladies look stunning. They have amazing, you know, tasselly, spangly outfits. Their hair, yeah, their makeup. There's their a lot heels, going on. Just look amazing. But I object to a gusset. <laughs> see if I'm if I'm watching, I don't want to see a gusset. I'm going to get you on a t-shirt for that. I think that's brilliant. Okay. I don't want to see a gusset. I object to gusset. <laughs> I tell, you, I tell you what I object to. Um, I, I agree with you. I'm team no gusset camp. Mm-hmm. Um, but also when they put the male dancers in really see-through tops, you know, I don't want to see nipples through fishnet. That's not, <laughs> that's not what I'm here for. <laughs> Leave something to the imagination, guys. But to be fair, this season, there was loads of dances where some of the female dancers were in trousers. Yeah, and OT, at least two dancers, she was in trousers. She looks fantastic looked in absolutely trousers. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. That's how you'd... Get, I mean, it's very hard, I think, to get me dancing in the first place. But if you were ever to manage to get me on some kind of dance show, it would be with the promise that I could dance in trousers. So have you have you done any dancing before? Oh, I've done, I went to one dance class, was terrible, hated it. I love the idea of being able to dance. It's that initial bit where I'm a bit like a baby giraffe learning to walk, which I can't <laughs> handle. Um, I'm not, rhythm and coordination is, uh, is not really my thing. No, I, I'm not particularly coordinated, I have to say. But I did, I did go to dances. Oh, I did, did go to, yeah, I went to a few lessons and we were learning to salsa, mm. which was very sexy. I mean, but the only issue was, was it was mostly women there. And oh, okay. that's fine. I mean, I don't mind dancing with a woman, but it was just the fact that one of you had to be the man. Of course, you have to have someone that leads, don't you? Yeah, and that was just too confusing because obviously the dance instructor wanted us to swap around so that we all had the opportunity of being the woman in the dance oh. and of course I just got confused and then that was it and I yeah, didn't get Yeah, you back. would have lost me there. Yeah. Absolutely. Too confusing. Too confusing. Speaking of a salsa, one of your favourite clips of Strictly of all time uh, was a salsa, wasn't it? This was, listeners, if you've not seen this, this is um, Ed Balls dancing the salsa and it is it's everything you imagine. I'd not seen this at all until you made me sit down half an hour before we recorded <laughs> this and watched this. And it's so spectacular. We're going to put the link in the show description so you can go and watch it now if you haven't seen it or if you just want to watch it again because it's comedy gold. But I'm just going to play a little bit of our reaction to it. We can't, with copyright laws, play the whole thing, unfortunately, but it's to Gangnam style and it's a salsa. It's quite something. Absolutely. 
He's striding on with some confidence. It spins there. I think, yeah, there's a lot of clever camera work. If the camera spins around him, he looks like he's doing more. Oh, oh God. No. Oh, Ed. <laughs> Please don't gyrate on TV ever again. I this don't, is, that's not appropriate. That this really is, is quite horrific. It's just the enthusiasm. I love it. Oh. Oh, he's dropped her. Oh, no, he hasn't dropped her. Oh, wow. Oh, that's clever, isn't she it? She is flexible. Oh, nice. through the legs to finish. <laughs> Oh, even listening back to that, it's just such a funny piece of television. It's and comedy gold. It is, it is. And you know, I really hate to admit it, but he, he probably is doing better there than I would be. Do you think? Possibly. Yeah. And that's not a reflection on his talent. That's a reflection <laughs> on my lack of. <laughs> so what, what score would you give him for that? Oh, score. Um, I think, you know what, I think for actually getting the moves done um, and, you know, his dancing prowess he's probably got maybe a four okay but for effort and for styling it out he gets a solid seven nice (laughs) channeled my len goodman there perfect (laughs) i think it's probably time we get on with the episode what do you think a little bit of science let's get some science in here okay so um we during our research we came across something really interesting actually and i think you probably best describe this So this, listeners, again, we're going to put a link up uh, in the show description, is a fantastic competition called Dance My PhD. Oh, yes. And it's exactly what you might or might not (laughs) think it is. So um, PhD candidates who have gone through their entire process of getting their doctorate, once they finish their thesis, they try and explain their research through the medium of interpretive dance. Interpretive dance. Yeah, which is fantastic, let me tell you right now. So... One of the ones that we watched, which was particularly brilliant and wholeheartedly we recommend, is the 2018 winner. Yes. And and what he was doing was looking at superconductivity. And uh, he did superconductivity, the musical. Brilliant. <laughs> which is just, you just have to watch it just because of the title. Uh, but he had, what he had was uh, all the dancers being electrons. So the movement of the electrons was the dancers explaining mm. what happens during, during, you know, during the process of superconductivity, which was amazing. Some electrons were better dancers than others. Yeah, we did, know, <laughs> we did notice there was one particular line that was amazing and others not so much. No, no. Um, and to be honest, I'm not sure I learned an awful lot about superconductivity, no. but it was brilliant to watch. Yeah, absolutely. And definitely worth a look. And that's a really cool example, I think, of um, a collaboration between science and creativity. But in this instance, the creativity kind of comes after the fact, doesn't it? The science, the research has occurred, and then they're using uh, dance as a kind of a really cool medium for science communication, I suppose. Yeah, and what what people don't realise maybe who are who are dancers, if you take ballet dancers, for mm. example, is the amount of physics that's involved in actually dancing. Yeah, science can actually be really fundamental to understanding dance and dancers. Yeah, and there's been a lot of research looking at how, you know, science can help prevent people getting injury. They can help dancers jump higher, spin faster, do more spins. And actually, um, there's been a lot of work looking at the physics of ballet, which is quite interesting. Mm. And we wanted to look at one ballet move in particular. Arguably the most famous ballet move um, probably of all time. I would imagine so, yeah. This is not coming from someone who knows their ballet. (laughs) But at some point, people will have seen or heard of um, the 32 spins that happen during Swan Lake. The Black Swan manages somehow to very cleverly spin 32 times in a row. And and what's interesting is that there's... um, 
there's someone called uh, Dr. Kenneth Laws, and he did a lot of work looking at the physics of ballet. And the reason he did this is because he got a couple of children who were wanting to go and join ballet. Mm. And he thought he'd go along and join in and Aww. see. So that's quite nice. It's good parenting. Um, and he quite he quite enjoyed it. His children got bored after a while and, and dropped out. But he carried on with the ballet. Oh, really? And, and he's a physicist. So he thought, let's, let's combine the two interests, the ballet and the physics. Naturally. And looked into the, into the physics behind ballet. Um, and he um, has actually done uh, a paper looking at ballet spins in particular and and all of the physics involved in a in a spin. Okay, talk me through. Okay. So <laughs> if you got if you imagine you're you're there, you're ready to do your your pirouette, um, what you do is you push off with one foot and by pushing off and twisting that foot, okay. what you're doing is generating or creating torque. And it's that torque that causes the rotation. Right, gotcha. Um, and then obviously once you've generated that rotation, you've got rotational momentum and that means that you can carry on spinning round. But she's not off of that one push, surely going to be able to spin 32 times, though, is she? There's, I mean, there's going to be friction between her foot and the floor, even if she's on point and it's only her toe touching the floor. Surely that's still going to slow her down. Yeah, and it absolutely does. And this is this is the clever bit. Now, if you are a ballet dancer, you might not realise why you're doing particular moves while you're spinning. But you will have noticed that um, as the ballerina spins, it's almost like for a fraction of a second, her entire body is still okay. apart from the leg. Ah, that's it. I've been distracted by the high kick. That's right. So there's still movement occurring. That's right. So her her legs coming up and and kicking out and then moving out and then moving back into the body again. Oh. And that's actually very clever use of physics. Oh. Here we go. (laughs) Here's the science. Um, So as she spins and she stops there for a fraction of a second, she lifts her leg up. The rotational momentum that she's got is transferred to the leg as the leg's moving around. Oh, I see. Um, And and then when she brings her leg in later, that rotational momentum's returned back to the body, which is quite quite an interesting idea but you've got to think why is she having to be stationary for a fraction of a second why not just continue to rotate yeah and it goes back to what you were saying about friction um so she's lost some of that momentum through friction she's got to regenerate a little bit of torque in order to gain Mm -hmm. that momentum back again so what you'll notice she does with her foot is she goes flat onto the ground and then back up to point again. And when she pushes back up to point, she generates a little bit more torque. Oh, I see. That extra torque replaces the momentum that she's lost. The leg comes back in, returning all that additional momentum from the previous spin back to the body, and she's able to spin. And bang, 32 times. Absolutely. Incredible. I think I could do it now. Do you think so? No, absolutely not. I would be sick (laughs) if I even tried. I can't even handle those um, roller coaster rides at small fairgrounds or spinning teacups. Oh, okay. I don't know how they do the head thing. You know, you see see dancers spinning and the head is looking at you the whole time. You're supposed to focus on one point, aren't you? And then you whip your head around and you focus on the same point again. And I think that's to help you keep your balance, but also to stop with motion sickness. Yeah. And I I, I genuinely, if if you're able to do that, listeners, I'm impressed. Absolutely. Even if you're able to do three spins in a row, I'm impressed. You don't even need to get to the 32 mark. Yeah. But it turns out that so the dance and science are actually quite closely linked and it's not just physics. You know, we're talking physiology, we're talking psychology, as well as biomechanics. Yeah, and it turns out you can actually study dance science as a discipline. So to find out more, we foxtrotted on over oh. to London. <laughs> oh, you caught there me. There she goes. There she goes. Hey, look, we've got to try and fit in as many Strictly dances as possible to this episode. And some of them are going to be more creatively shoehorned in than others. Yeah, and we'll give you a list at the end. Let's see if we match up. <laughs> Let's see if you can count how many I managed to squeeze in. Anyway... 
we're headed on over to London to speak to Professor Emma Redding from the Trinity Laban Conservatoire of Music and Dance to find out a little bit more about what dance science actually is. Dance science is a relatively new but fast-growing area of research and study. Um, I'd say it's been going about 20 years, which is not that long when you look at medicine generally or or sports science. Um, And... Yeah, essentially dance science is about looking at ways of enhancing dance training and optimising performance potential among all different kinds of dancers from a physiological, psychological and biomechanical perspective. And it's also looking at how we measure dance um, and the benefits of dance in community settings as well. So one of the reasons that we really wanted to go and speak to Emma was when we were looking at the website for Trinity Laban, they had some incredible images of dancers in a studio wearing scientific equipment it was this really strange futuristic approach it just looked fascinating we were like yep you we want to talk to you what on earth is going on in these pictures so just to set the scene you can go and see some of these images on our instagram if you want to see what we're talking about and one of my favorite things about the day that we spent there yeah. um was the lab tour we got oh, to actually yes. go to the laboratory and find out what these things were and what they did yeah and and we were really lucky because we had um, a first year dance student actually on the treadmill and we got to see the equipment in action and see how they use it Poor soul. Yeah. Yeah. Bless her. So without further ado, should we waltz on oh, over? Oh, here lab? she goes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where we're going to go and speak to lab technician Scott Sinclair, who is a sports scientist who now works at the Conservatoire. So today we're going to be using the Metamax, which is a gas analysis system. And what that is essentially is, is a breath by breath measurement. So we're going to be um, using the treadmill as a form of exercise modality. And we're going to be looking at the energy cost to move within the exercise itself. So the idea is that we're measuring breath by breath. So we're looking at the oxygen consumed to the CO2 being produced. From that, we can use the software to gauge the energy cost of movement. So in terms of a dance specific context, you know, we're using the treadmill, but we generally like to take it out into the studios so we can look at the demands of choreography, given a specific sequence or a specific movement in itself. So let me just describe what we're looking at here, because this is quite a fun picture to paint. Yeah, absolutely. The student is on the treadmill and she's got what looks like a face mask on, which is kind of wired into a tiny little backpack that she's got strapped to her, um, which is again wired into another machine. Yeah, and, and what's happening is the information from all this machinery is being uh, transferred to a computer and then onto a screen and we can monitor you know, her vital signs in real time. And of course, as you can, I'm sure, imagine, with a treadmill running and all sorts of scientific equipment whirring away in the background, there's quite a lot of background noise to this clip. Yeah. So I'm just going to start the test. Um, so we've collected some resting data now. So all the variables on, on the screen look quite stable and we know we're quite happy to go. So we're looking at VO2 values. We're looking at VCO2 values and we're looking at RER values. So your RER is what is known as your respiratory exchange ratio. And in simplistic terms, that's basically looking at your substrate utilization. So how much fat you're burning, how much carbohydrate you're burning. And depending on the value, that will determine which um, energy system or which substrate you're actually utilizing at that moment in time. So right now we're looking at about 0.85, which kind of tells us is predominantly fats that we're burning slash bit of carbohydrates. Now, when we start to increase the intensity of the exercise, that value will shift to the right and we'll start to get values of greater than one. 
when we see values of greater than one, that tells us we're working quite heavily on the um, carbohydrate side, which means we're kind of gearing in towards fatiguing. We're working, transitioning more to the anaerobic side. So we're switching from aerobic to anaerobic. And we're going to increase to seven kilometers an hour. So now the intensity is going to start to rise. And if you look on screen, we have this blue line here, which represents our VO2. So the trace kind of follows a steady state phase, but as we start to increase intensity, we get this linear response. So the linear response reflects the increase in oxygen demands. So the idea is that we're gonna increase, 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 and to really deem a true VO2 max, we'd like to see a plateau on the VO2 curve. And really what that represents is the upper limit, so the, the ceiling of that individual. He mentioned uh, VO2 max there quite a lot, didn't he? He did indeed, yeah. Science teacher Karen. Yes. You know what I'm going to ask you. Oh, absolutely. What is VO2 max? It's the maximum rate at which the body uses oxygen. So it's that kind of upper limit for athletes and in this case dancers, um, the maximum rate at which you can use oxygen. So this is really important because it can help us work out whether dancers and at what point dancers are respiring anaerobically and aerobically, isn't it? Because if you stop being able to use oxygen you start to respire anaerobically, which means you produce lactic acid. Yes, and we know what lactic acid leads to. Cramps. And nobody wants cramps. No, absolutely not. I don't think that's a feature of Swan Lake. No, it's, it doesn't make a dance look elegant. No, you, not you if know. you're at the back of the nutcracker and someone's stretching out someone's leg. <laughs> that's not going to look great, is it? <laughs> Do you know what? I've got a vision of that now. You're welcome. You're, you're very welcome. So this particular setup as well is really important on an individual basis as well, isn't it? Because you can learn as an individual dancer at what point your personal fatigue is. So if you're looking at a piece of choreography that you and all your classmates or your contemporaries are doing, maybe some people um, fatigue at certain at different points. Yeah, because it's you've got to think about, you know, if you are carrying out this particular piece of dance and you're struggling at one particular element of it, then maybe you need to change your fitness regime. Um, to get yourself fitter so that you're able to then, you know, carry out that particular piece of choreography elegantly. To the best of your abilities and to minimise your own injury. Yeah. And science, of course, is not just taught or understood in the lab with dance science, is it? No. So let's take it back to Emma Redding now to find out a little bit more about how they use different disciplines of science in their understanding of dance. Another research project we're doing is looking at tracking dancers in training um, so that we can prepare them even better for the profession and the demands of the profession. So we screen all our dancers. So we essentially build a profile of every dancer. So, for example, in our first year BA programme, we have 135 dancers. Uh, they all want to become performers and choreographers. And we invited them down to the dance science lab and we did a one hour screen with them where we were measuring their flexibility, their strength, uh, muscular endurance, uh, we looked at, for example, bilateral differences, whether they were really different on one side to the other, uh, their turnout. We did some psychological measurements as well. And essentially what we're trying to do is look at how they progress across time. So they've already passed their audition. They've passed on their artistic merit. But once they're in, we give them information about themselves so that they can feel empowered and responsible for their own development. But also we can look at what we're doing with them. Are they leaving after three years healthier, fitter? Do they smoke less? Uh, is their menstrual health more normal? Um, are they more flexible, stronger, fitter? less injured and the other thing we're doing alongside that is measuring their injury tracking their injury every week um, across time uh, just to see where the maybe the trends and patterns are so that we can then respond accordingly within the curriculum to make sure that they're not overtraining and that they're working optimally 
You mentioned menstrual health there. Is there a link then between kind of dancing and, and how your body's regulating those processes? Yes, there is. Research indicates that dancers, particularly ballet dancers, are more at risk of um, experiencing irregularities when it comes to their menstrual health. So um, in the general population, I think it's something around two to five percent of females um, don't have regular periods. But in the dancing population, particularly in the ballet world, it can be anything between sort of five percent to 70 percent. So pretty serious um, and there are lots of reasons for that. Um, ballet dancers, some ballet dancers tend to restrict their diet, their nutritional intake, so they're underweight or under fat. Um, and their body, then their brain is essentially saying, you know, you can't menstruate, you're not healthy enough to um, reproduce. So that's what happens. And of course, at the time, a lot of dancers are not too bothered about not having regular periods. I mean, it's an inconvenience, right? So, um, but actually the long-term effects are very serious. So we try and educate dancers and tell them the risks. If their body mass index and body fat falls too low, then they are at more risk of um, irregular menstrual cycles. So I think it's something that happens in um, sport as well, isn't it? Where you get athletes who become supremely fit, mm. um, a low body fat again, and um, consequently their, their periods are affected. And a lot of female athletes will then stop training in order to become pregnant. But psychology also has a real impact or it plays a role in dance science as well. How do you kind of communicate that and teach your students about psychology? Yeah, psychology has a really big role to play when it comes to optimising dancers' performance and their training. Um, and we have people here who are psychologists and they are on our lecturing team. So they teach the dance science students, but they also teach the um, students who are doing the sort of the, the, the dance programmes, the undergraduate programmes, where they, they don't want to be dance science um, researchers but they want to be good dancers and our psychologists teach them as well uh, we have a compulsory module in the first year where they all have to learn about um, ha have to develop their psychological skills so their ability to self-talk to goal set to use mental imagery to use relaxation techniques they all learn about performance anxiety and the debilitating effect of performance anxiety and how to how to combat that and they all learn how to develop coping skills and coping strategies when it comes to stress um, so they're sort of trying to, you know, I suppose we're trying to get them to regulate their own emotions more. Um, so, yeah, there's quite a lot of research now into, for example, the psychological impact of injury and how that affects dancers very significantly. Because, um, you know, at the end of the day, dancing is their identity. It's who they are. So if they're injured, it affects their whole being, not just their job. So Emma finished there talking about... Um, you know, about psychology and about well-being. And there's actually been a large number of studies looking at the relationship between dance and mental health. Yeah, particularly actually with people who have neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson's. So there's a lot of studies that look at how dance classes can impact their motor functions. So things like their gait, their balance, their ability to walk, but also crucially on their mental health and, and how they feel as an individual, how they assess their own quality of life and how much confidence they have in their inabilities to do physical things. And bringing it back to Strictly, we're talking Argentine tango and salsa. Yes, yeah, specifically, these seem to be the two dances that are really popular in dance classes that are tailored for people with Parkinson's. We found these papers so interesting that we thought we would actually speak to Parkinson's UK about how dance is used as a therapy. Absolutely. And this is something that Katie Goats, the professional engagement manager at Parkins UK, very American smoothly oh, uh, oh, now, come on, we got. I've got to stop you right there because... Hey, that one was great. That was very good, oh, I have thanks. to say. <laughs> I just had to acknowledge that. 
<laughs> I've been planning that one for weeks. <laughs> anyway, let's go and chat to Katie. So um, we've been doing a little bit of research into Parkinson's and what interests us particularly is the link between dance and Parkinson's and how it can support people. Yeah, so we know now that exercise uh, is as good as medication, as good as drugs uh, for people with Parkinson's. Um, so at Parkinson's UK, we're really keen on getting people exercising, getting people more active because it can help delay um, the progression of their symptoms and help them manage more on a day-to-day basis. Um, and dance is a fantastic type of exercise. Um, so obviously it has great uh, physical benefits for people and it can help people work on specific symptoms that they might experience as part of their Parkinson's so their coordination their balance um, speed and size of movement so you'll see a lot of dance programs focused on Parkinson's people doing really big movements jumping around everywhere Um, but also it has that social benefit to it and that mental health benefit to it um, which is obviously for anyone with a long-term condition getting out there meeting people with the same condition and having that connection is hugely beneficial as well and when it comes to the actual pathways do you know actually how dance does manage to slow down the progression of the disease so there hasn't been that much research done into the specifics of that um, but there is growing evidence showing that exercise in general uh, can be progressive and can stop the progression of the condition um, by helping brain cells to regenerate. So in Parkinson's, um, it's all about the loss of brain cells that stops the brain being able to pick up dopamine and that's linked in with all the symptoms um, that come with Parkinson's. Um, But we don't have any medications at the moment that can help those cells to regrow so the drugs that we have kind of mask the symptoms but there's no way of stopping that progression Um, so exercise might be and there's growing evidence that it might be a way to actually start regrowing the brain cells for people and of course dance isn't just a positive thing for people with parkinson's it's also great for those in the elderly community absolutely and this is something that some of emma redding's research actually looks at and at trinity laban they now run classes and research with the elderly So we've got a a large learning and participation or community department that does a lot of outreach work with different um, populations in the surrounding area and beyond, actually. Um, And we've teamed up with them. And we've done a couple of research projects now with um, older people, with younger people, people in schools, uh, people in socially deprived areas. Um, And really what we're trying to do is measure scientifically the benefits of dance participation on areas of health and well-being and um, It's a really interesting type of research in a way because what we don't want to do is just apply the sorts of methods, research methods that we would use with the younger people, for example, where, I don't know, a questionnaire might be the best way to go or some kind of fitness test. You can't always do that with um, older people. For example, we did some studies with... um, people with acquired brain injury so cognitively they're not functioning in the same way as others so to do a questionnaire would not be ideal it wouldn't be relevant or appropriate so we did lots of observational and more kind of ethnographic research around that population um um, with with older people we've got a big uh, older people's class here and they're always willing to be engaged in research 
Uh, we did a study recently um, with one of our MFA students. She did a project where she asked the older people to take photographs of anything they wanted to that related to the dance class and the impact that that dance class is having on them. So, for example, one participant took a picture of her feet because older people don't often take their shoes and socks off and stand in a studio, right? And then in the interview sort of talked about how much she likes her feet more. And then, of course, the, just the value of touch. You know, as we know, loneliness and depression is is quite a, a big problem among the older populations. And just to have have them in a studio where touch, physical touch, is included, we can't underestimate the significance of that, actually. And so we're asking questions around the, the impact of that. We see anecdotally how older people, uh, some of them are sort of dressing up a bit more, putting a bit of lipstick on as they come to class and just valuing themselves and, uh, you know, a little bit more just looking at themselves differently in terms of their value and self-worth. And there's one thing that came up in one interview uh, where an older woman was talking about how dance has improved her social flexibility. And we tried to unpick that more. And she was explaining that when she was in, in her in her working life, you know, you have to mix with people that perhaps you don't quite get on with, different personalities. You have to sort of compromise. You, you know, you're in a meeting and you have to, in the end, accept somebody else's opinion or whatever or decision. And she said, you know, when you retire, you don't have that anymore. You actually have to... Uh, what you do is you surround yourself with people that, who are like-minded. So you don't have to be adaptable or flexible in that way. But she said, in this dance class, there are loads of people I don't know. They're making decisions about the movements that I don't agree with, but actually I have to go along with it. And it's, it's, it's reminding me of how flexible I had to be in the workplace. So those sorts of things are really great to see. Oh gosh, isn't that the most heartwarming thing? Yeah, and the and the range of impacts that dance is actually having on this community. It's amazing. It's brilliant. I'm going to sign everyone who's retired that I know up for dance classes. Yeah. Whether they like it or not. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that Katie mentioned as well from Parkinson's UK was that they even run classes for people with reduced mobility. So you can sit in a chair and you can still participate in the class in that you can do these really long, elongated kind of arm and leg movements, but you don't necessarily have to be up and dancing around and jumping around. Yeah, that's right. So so, um, the person that's working with you will be standing behind you and you kind of carry out this dance routine with one person standing and one person sitting, which is a really interesting idea. Yeah, you still have this lovely partnership. Mm. It's brilliant. I think, you know, maybe that would suit my potential dance style. Do you think? So you think you could do some kind of elegant dance routine while seated? (laughs) Whether it would be elegant or not, I don't know. But it would probably mean that I wouldn't fall over and, you know, have everyone laugh at me quite so often. Oh, I suppose it's got those kind of benefits. I mean, me personally, I think I'd like something a little bit more energetic. So I'm more of a kind of a Lindy Hop kind of person. It's something I really would have loved to have learned. Very bouncy. Yeah. Yeah. To be fair, I have to agree with you. I'd love to be able to maybe do like the jive or the Charleston properly. They look amazing. Yeah. Yeah. We saw some, when we were watching the videos earlier on today, we were at some amazing Charlestons. We did. And again, um, women dancing in trousers. Yeah. Which is always good. Fantastic. Okay. And, you know, speaking of, you know, these kind of more active dances, there's also been quite a bit of research into uh, Irish dancing. Oh, another very high octane dance. Yes. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, I don't know how they do that with all the, the feet going really, really quickly. And their upper body not moving at all. I know. What it's a, a skill. It's amazing. Yeah, I, genuinely. I, I just genuinely don't know how people manage to do Irish dancing. Um, but the, the, the research was actually carried out by uh, Dr. Jane Shippen at um, Coventry University, okay. who's actually a biomechanic. Oh, right. And he's looking at, you know, the, the mechanics behind biological systems. And he was looking at one particular move within Irish dancing, which is called the rock. 
Oh, is this the one where they, well, rock very quite quickly on their ankles and, you know, almost looks like they're going to break their ankles? Yeah, kind of rocking from side to side. Yeah. Um, and he was looking at the, the forces involved in that. And he found out that actually there's 14 times your body weight's worth of force going through the ankle. What? during that move i know 14 14 times gosh your body weight and of course that's a real injury risk yep i can see that yep mm-hmm. so uh so what he did was he worked with the dance troupe worked with the choreographers and uh they changed the way that they do the rock slightly and it's something where if you were watching it as an audience member mm. you wouldn't necessarily notice the difference um but um just by tweaking the choreography they reduced that down to eight times the body weight oh wow so quite a significant change i mean eight still sounds like quite a lot of extra body weight but that's a huge difference. It must make such a difference on their injury prevention. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, this is a really good example of science and dance working closely together. Excellent. Well, that's about all we've got time for today, Karen. Mm-hmm. And before we wrap up, if I was going to go to California and I was going to go dancing, where should I go? I don't know. To San Fran Disco. Oh, my God. <laughs> Do you know what, listeners? She would not tell me what that joke was going to be. I knew she was going to do a joke. Oh, I didn't know what it was going to be. I dredged it up from the depths of the internet and I really chuckled. So I just thought, you know, I'm going to have to try and squeeze in that in there. somewhere. That's a proper Christmas cracker joke. That one. It is. Yeah, yeah you're right. Know. I'm sorry. I'll do better next time. But <laughs> listeners, if you've been playing along with our Spot the Strictly keyword bingo, yep. you should have noticed that we managed to we managed to talk about quite a few yeah, dances quite impressive. here, actually. So you should have spotted the samba. The Salsa, the Foxtrot, the Waltz, the Argentine Tango, the American Smooth, the Lindy Hop, the Charleston and the Jive. But we did miss the rumba. That was on our list and we failed. Never mind. And don't forget to subscribe Mm -hmm. and leave us a nice review if you've enjoyed this. And you can keep in touch with us as well. So if you want to see any of the things that we've referenced in this week's episode or find out just generally what we're up to, you can find us on Instagram. At Small Screen SciPod. On Twitter. At Small Screen Sci. On Facebook. Small Screen Science Podcast. Or you can drop us an email. Small Screen Sci at gmail.com. Lovely jubbly. We look forward to hearing from you and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.